Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. With this episode, we're moving into the second installment of our four-part podcast series on queer activisms, in which historians, performers, educators, and activists take a deep dive into existence and resistance in past and present queer life. Today, our subject is the AIDS crisis, the shaping of AIDS activism, and the politics of loss and grief. Joining me to discuss this are two activist scholars who have written extensively about AIDS and its legacy. Matt Cook is professor of modern history at Birkbeck College, London, and the author of Archives of Feeling, AIDS in Britain, 1987, published in History Workshop Journal in 2017. Deborah Levine teaches theater at Harvard University. She was a member of ACT UP New York from 1988 to 1994, and her new article reflecting on that experience, You Are Witness to a Crime, provides a focal point for our discussion. I thought that maybe we could start just by talking biographically about how you, um, well, your experience of the AIDS epidemic, AIDS activism, um, maybe starting with you, Deborah, just how you, you know, when you first realized that this was on the horizon and how you got involved with ACT UP. Sure. Um, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And I was actually in graduate school for the first time I was in graduate school at Columbia University in New York City. And um, I, I had already had experience with a number of people in my life. Actually, the first person I knew who had, was HIV positive, had AIDS and died, was the guy who cut my hair. And I was in theater. He used to cut my hair in the basement of the theater that, where Miss Saigon was playing. And he got really sick. And, and I kept in touch with him all throughout his illness. And, and I was very, like a lot of my friends were in the gay community. A very close friend of mine started volunteering as a buddy at GMHC. Another person that I was really close with had started going to ACT UP meetings. And just as I was graduating with my MFA in theater and directing, I was also working at an organization that uh, produced public art called Creative Time. And they gave me a big grant to do a site-specific performance piece in the uh, anchorage underneath the Brooklyn Bridge, which is beautiful. And it was originally built to be Fort Knox. And I was gonna do a piece about AIDS, very metaphoric, kind of a Mask of the Red Death piece based on Edgar Allan Poe. And I wanted to go and do research. I went to an ACT UP meeting I realized very quickly that my understanding of the crisis was very limited and, and actually not very good. And so I actually gave, up the, gave back the money and started going to ACT UP meetings. It was the most extraordinary thing that I had ever encountered. I knew one person in the organization beforehand. I walked into that room and it was the most a live experience, first of all, I had ever encountered politically. And, and everybody was so, I think that it was February of 1988. And, and, and Matt, how about, how about you? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to reflect on because it, in fact, I, thinking about it, I realized that my gayness I, was absolutely wrapped up with AIDS because I think, you know, I was uh, in my teens in the eighties. And so before I really, I suppose, thought of myself as gay, I was, you know, hearing as a 15, 16 year old, you know, that gay stood for got AIDS yet and AIDS was arse injected death sentence and all these things that were going around the playground and so on at the school in small village in the middle of England where I lived. And I remember that there was a there was a local shop which was run by two guys and there was a whole thing about not going to get your lunch from this shop because you might get AIDS and I was very intrigued by these guys you know they they kind of 
you know, intrigued me because I thought, well, maybe that's who I am or, you know, and so my kind of sexual, my, my, I suppose my realizations about my sexuality were very much accompanied by a whole rhetoric of fear and illness in that sense. And so I, I kind of came out into AIDS and, I, and, and in quite a specific way, I suppose, because in 1986 in the UK, there was this mass leafleting of every household with this uh, leaflet called Don't Die of Ignorance. And it was there that I picked up the, they had, they printed the number of lesbian and gay switchboard in London on that leaflet. And that was my first step was calling that number and very specifically coming, coming out of that, that leaflet that came to my, my, uh, the, the door of my family home. So I suppose in that sense, AIDS couched me and couched my understanding of what it meant to be gay. And so, and all the subsequent steps, you know, the kind of, my kind of sexual nervousness or concern about starting a relationship all of those things were couched in that rhetoric and in that kind of in a sense climate of fear but also once I come, came to London in 1990 after I'd been to uni in the north of England also into a real sense that there was a, a very cohesive or solid sense of community I mean I felt that very immediately coming into London I think I realized that that was also to do with the AIDS crisis. I mean, there were certainly strong elements of that before, but by 1990, which was the peak of mortality, of AIDS-related mortality in the UK, I think similar in the States in 1991. But, and so I kind of came into that context at, at a point when actually people had really rallied. You know, we weren't in the early days of the crisis, but there had been sort of activism and, and movements to care and support and so on in, in which people had come together. And so I suppose I, I came into a sense of community that was very much shot through with, it, with, with AIDS activism and AIDS, AIDS care. And my first boyfriend who I met about two months after I arrived, you know, he was a little bit older, seven years older. And it was his friends and his former lovers who were getting ill and dying. And so there was that, also that very strange sense of, 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 of experiencing some of this almost as, a, as the kind of next generation, even though this, this boyfriend was only seven years older, but still, um, you know, he lost three former lovers in the first few years we were together. And so it was his friends and his lovers' funerals that I was going to and to visit in hospital and so on. And so there was a, an odd sense of disconnect, of kind of connect and disconnect in a way in those early years. And it was, it was I suppose, through those routes that I, I, I got involved in buddying, uh, which, for, which I think the, the buddying system in, in, in London very much was on the back of what was happening in New York and inspired by that. And that's really, I suppose, where most of my efforts went as well as kind of, you know, various marches and meetings, especially in, in, in the UK around clause 28, section 28, which ostensibly was not about AIDS, but absolutely was. This was the uh, piece of legislation that uh, forbade local authorities from inverted commas promoting homosexuality. Um, and that was very much in the context of a new visibility um, that came with the AIDS crisis. Um, and so there was, my activism was very much kind of engaged, engaging with that and marching and protesting around, around Clause 28, which always had ACT UP um, participants and, and, and so on. And I suppose the other, I, I mean, it's interesting where quite what we think of as activism, because in a way, I think I, I was timid in a way, and I was in awe of direct action, but never quite plucked up the, the courage to, to engage in that way. And I wonder whether, in a way, going back to university and getting immersing myself in Derek Jarman and writing about him and getting obsessed about these other works and writing in that way, was, was, it was at some level, it's, I mean, it didn't, didn't feel at all activist, but I suppose it was about trying to work out what lay behind the raw hatred and uh, uh, that I was seeing and in, in the press and in, through government and, you know, what were the structures that kind of fueled this, fueled this divide and this, and this horror that, uh, that so many men were, were going through. You know, the, the thing that Matt said that I find really interesting, and especially looking at the very early years of ACT UP, first of all, in ACT UP, there were some older people who were HIV positive and who, who died early. But for the most part, in the first few years of ACT UP, the majority of the younger people either didn't know their HIV status 
or if they did, were still very healthy. The, but the really interesting thing for me is this question of identity, mm. because we had some young people who joined ACT UP who actually left university, like Spencer Cox or Heidi Doro or Rod Sorge, and either had just graduated or, or actually left and didn't graduate. And they were queer and they already, uh, they came to ACT UP because that was, the, that was the way to be gay and political. But if you actually look at the oral history interviews and, and a number of my friends like Richard Elevich or Greg Bordowitz or Rebecca Colt, like Andy Velez who had two children and came into the center, like no one identified just as gay. Like there was a way in which they had to struggle with identity and identity consolidated after they became AIDS activists. So the AIDS activism sort of like catalyzed the, the identity category rather than people thinking about themselves. I mean, there were a lot of gay men who just came and knew they were gay and were involved in gay politics beforehand. But there was a whole group of young people who really didn't necessarily just identify with that older generation uh, appellation of gay. So. So for me, it was super interesting. I mean, I, I married a man who was in ACT UP who was straight and really like hadn't really reconsidered myself as queer till I was in middle age and, and did so because of my AIDS activism and the way that I wanted to both identify and feel allied. But um, it's, it, it was a different thing than like thinking that already if you were gay, the the AIDS crisis was already something that was uh, sort of overarching. And then that's the way in which you affiliated with your sexuality. Mm, that's so interesting. Mm. I was thinking as you were talking as well about, about New York in that context and how that mattered in that, in that kind of, I mean, well, you, you, you'll be able to speak much more eloquently about it but I mean that sense of counterculture that, that kind of very prominent sense of counterculture and artistic and creative community coming together via actor which I think you know London was only a muted echo of that in a way you know there was something a particular intensity to what was going in New York on in New York in that respect and I wonder whether I wonder whether AIDS activism here was slightly different in that respect. I mean, it, there was a less, there was a less, I mean, in terms both of the dynamics of identity you're talking about, I mean, I think yeah. it was more solidly gay men. I mean, not, yeah. not exclusively, absolutely not exclusively, but largely. But also I think we were fighting different things. And in a way, there was a health crisis in the States that we didn't, we weren't experiencing here. I mean, there was a, there was a health crisis around men falling ill and dying, and, but there wasn't a health crisis in terms of provision because we had a national health system. And so in a way there was something much more absolutely urgent and immediate in, the, in, 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 in New York and in the US. And, and I think that gives a different flavor or different texture to the activism that was happening there. Matt, I actually, like, this is new for me. So can you talk to me a little bit about whether I understand that no one was fighting to get health provision, but the health provision was equitable in the UK, especially when men were seeking out like either um, experimental treatments or like making sure that everybody got housing or dealing with discrimination in healthcare systems? I mean, for sure, there was, there was problems. And, and especially in the early years when it was uncertain what was being dealt, what, what doctors and nurses were dealing with and the fear in the healthcare system and all sorts of horror stories about the way men in the early 80s, early in the 80s were treated when they came into hospital. And there's a real vein also of treatment activism and that whole move, which is absolutely resonant with the states of kind of collaboration between gay men um, and doctors and nurses in terms of um, finding out and, and, and what treatments were going on elsewhere and what could work and so on. But I think the, the bottom line is that everybody had a right to healthcare. So it wasn't, it wasn't like men were not getting admitted into hospital. You know, there was discrimination and problems and all sorts of things, but, they, but the, and, and I think in a way that, that played out more in the social care than the healthcare system. So in terms of the provision of, of council housing, for example, for young men who had lung 
issues and couldn't live in the squatted accommodation that they were living in or whatever and the problem of getting them into council housing which which had a reducing stock but nevertheless there was a social care system and there was a health system that was that was underpinning and 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 and, and supporting people as they got sick and in a way that's what i why i raised section 28 because i think the anger and activism got directed in more more towards the attempt to repress visibility, which was absolutely, I see as an aspect of activism in the States, of course. But it it was here, I think, more around a politics of citizenship and belonging and the right to be seen and the right to be heard, um, which Section 28 of 1988, you know, was was a rearguard action to prevent that or or to attempt to, 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 to stymie it. And that was the kind of catalyst for anger, not, you know, men not being able to access hospital care I, can I pick up on two things that you said? I'm really curious, especially because you're a scholar who's looked at Jarman very deeply. This question of the New York chapter of ACT UP, which was the original chapter, chapter of ACT UP, was organized in a very different fashion because it was really the creative community that attended these meetings too. And, and I think that that has a lot to do with it. I mean, the the sort of flourishing of artwork that came from Act Up New York was really pretty extraordinary as well. And and I don't think, I mean, Act Up Chicago, for example, was really composed of a lot of 1960s radicals who were involved in like deep ideological politics for a very long time. There were a lot of people in Act Up New York like myself, for whom this was the basis of like adult political action and it other than university. And so what do you think that contributed to the AIDS movement and why was it unique to you? I mean, in, in your opinion, I'm really curious about that. What what the New York, what New York, what what was happening in New York contributed yeah. to the UK? Yeah. I think it I think in if you look at the style of act up in the UK and if you look at this I mean if you look at Jarman's rhetoric and shifting rhetoric across the 80s and into the early 90s when he you know came out as queer as a, you know and, and talked about being queer as opposed to being gay which is what he'd done earlier and the the presence of actor protesters in his in Edward II for example there's absolutely a sense I think of of act up in New York and activism in New York inflecting the, that kind of um, mode of politics and of course, it, it echoed from the Gay Liberation Front, you know, 20 years up, years earlier in many ways, too, in both in, in, in both the States and the UK. But I think in London, it felt like it felt still mar- like the more marginal politics. It wasn't the centre of AIDS politics and activism or an associated gay lesbian activism. So they always fe- it always felt slightly on the periphery, even if, you know, they were widely admired and, you know, there was much discussion and so on. But it wasn't the kind of a hub that drew, uh, it, you know, large numbers of people. I think so. I think in that sense, the politics here felt a little more diffuse than maybe it did in in New York would be my take on it and my memory of it, actually. I mean, it was it was really interesting because we had parallel movements you know you had you also had Stonewall which was much more of a lobbying group again formed around pushing back against section 28 and in a way you had the had the two running alongside and they're often pitched against each other although there was much there was much um there was much um um conversation between them but but in a way that it wasn't in a way they they were two two of several threads of politics so it didn't feel so singular, which is, I suppose, the impression I get of New York politics in the early 90s, which, you know, might be wrong, but I suppose that's how I'd see, that's how I'd compare. And I think it's partly, again, that the ACT UP New York approach didn't bite in the same way or didn't, didn't get taken up in quite the same way for a number, of, a number of reasons here. Do you think that that's because this mode of grassroots organizing and direct action is much more of an American formation? I think we've got those traditions here too. I mean, I think you put your finger on it, maybe the kind of intersection, what the, the particular 
intersections that you got in New York around creative community and also intensity of community. I mean, even the, the geography of New York lends itself yes. right to to that kind of that kind of um, tumult or upsurge, if you like. And I think London. London functions in a different way. It's more diffuse. It's more spread out. You know, you don't quite get that intensity of meeting. So although, you know, Jarman and his, you know, those kind of warehouses on the South Bank, you know, were very reminiscent, I suppose, of some of the settings that, you know, we get familiar with from New York in this period. Um, but they they didn't function in in the same way as a kind of a, a kind of artistic creative hub in a, on a much more minor scale, I think. I think that you're, I'm sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt, but, uh, you know, before even Grand Fury organized, obviously there was a silence equals death project mm -hmm. and, and literally you could just, you know, the creative community certainly lived in Brooklyn, up in Harlem, but there was an intensity to, of, in terms of geography between the East Village, the West Village, Soho, mm. and, and the posters on the wall everywhere that were repasted everywhere. There was a way in which like the writing on the wall is something that you couldn't escape when you walked across town or saw people. And I keep thinking about the fact that even after ACT UP meetings, you know, the Michael Cunningham was in one of the ACT UP affinity groups. I mean, I can just start rattling off writers, painters, filmmakers, Tom mm -hmm. Kalen was making Swoon. I mean, they was like the center of the indie film move, movement. So there was a way in which like everybody was having dinner afterward at Benny's Burritos or Woody's or later there was the people who had more money who went to Florent. But like there was an intensification of social life, of artistic milieu, of, of meetings that all happened like exactly. in a very small geographic area that absolutely kept the energy very, very at, at a very high level, I think. Absolutely. And I think and I think if you look at the geography of of London, it just doesn't work in the same way. And, and particularly in this period. I mean, if we're thinking about, for example, those those warehouses on the South Bank that that that, that Jarman and other 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 artists and creatives were were, were using that was earlier. You know, by the nineties they were already they'd already by the late eighties early nineties they were already being redeveloped. You know, Soho as a gay village supposedly was beginning to develop in the early nineties, but much more as a commercial hub than an artistic or creative one. And so there was no kind of heart or center for the kind of fusion of creativity and activism in the way that you got in New York. And in fact quite, you know, outrage and Peter Tatchell and ACT UP and, uh, and so on were actively avoiding Soho and its, and its new oh. commercialism. So, that, so, that, so it was more dispersed, I think. And I, I, I think that changes the tenor of it. And it also changes the tenor of, of where people were, were visible and where they protested as well. You know? I wonder I if we could pick up on, on, on that point too, just these, I mean, I think this is completely fascinating about the parallels and differences in the two sort of hubs. And how did that sort of track when it came to death, bereavement, grief, mourning, loss, and the, the, the politics mm -hmm. of, of caring for the, the debt, which, you know, Deborah, you've written about very movingly. Do you mind if I jump in there? Please do. I, yeah. there's, there are two things, which is that, as I said, in the beginning when I joined ACT UP, we didn't have our relentless sense of death and loss, although you could walk on the streets of the West Village, see a lot of very emaciated men with kaposis. It, it was a very different kind of tension, but when people started to die within ACT UP, and I write about a close friend and comrade of mine, Ray Navarro, but Ray Navarro, Vito Russo, Michael Callant, like when people started to die, pretty consistently, then what ACT UP always just said is, you know, we'll have time to mourn later. And, and there was a real denial of like stopping the activism to take the time to observe and mourn. And, and then ACT UP was quite famous later on, several years later for staging these political funerals on the street. And, and I think that um, it, you know, 
there were two things that happened, which is that people were dying pretty consistently. And some of the people that you were on the street with and, and lying down on the street doing civil disobedience with would be in the hospital a week later. Because we were organized in, we were, we were not centralized, but really all of those demonstrations happened through affinity groups, like 10, 12 people who were supposed to take care of one another. The affinity group used, then started to function as a caregiving collective for the people that they demonstrated with pretty consistently. So there was one called Wave 3, Brian Damage was an artist who got sick and then wave three like organized themselves to take care of him. But they did it in ways so that the person who they knew as an activist first could still be engaged with the politics and they didn't do it. Part of ACT UP's um, ideology was that like the there was autonomy and you didn't become a patient and and you didn't just do the things that your physician told you to do, but like you, you were able to determine the conditions for your illness and your death. And so because we center the PWA as the most vulnerable person in these demonstrations, affinity groups became sort of the main vehicle of care for people who would have been abandoned by their families of birth because of stigma. And then and those affinity groups actually were the ones who started to say, well, you know, what are we actually going to do with our dead? And, and started looking at what David Wojnarowicz wrote about throwing his body on the White House lawn and started to think about how their bodies could even become political. So I think that our mourning was always couched in a very interesting kind of politics and political action. Mm. And, and the sense of like mourning as a kind of time when you actually retreated from the world, I think was deferred for decades, actually. I mean, I started to write about it in my dissertation and posted just a list of all the ACT UP dead. And I got like 800 responses of stories, people who hadn't actually grieved together as a group before because everybody had been repressing that. That was kind of our creed at the time. So it was a really complicated situation, but we were really like the, the way that the pandemic is uh, an ongoing crisis. We were in a crisis for over a decade. Mm. No, I really recognize that in some of the interviews I did with there was a group of squatters in South London who I did some interview work with and several of their number died just after the squats uh, dissolved. They were a squatting community for about 10 years. And, and in an interview I did just about five or six years ago, one of the guys said almost exactly that, that he said, well, he was only starting now to grieve, that actually there was a sense of real suspension and a need to suspend. Because actually, if you, he said, if you, there was the feeling, A, that your grief wasn't observable and recognised, you know, losing a friend didn't didn't have cultural purchase. You know, losing a parent or a child or a sibling, you know, had a resonance or meaning. But losing a friend, you know, people didn't understand the trauma of that. These people, these men who'd lived together for over a decade, and lose, losing those 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 friends. So the idea that it, that it didn't have credence because it wasn't visible, but also just because there were, it not exactly wasn't time. But actually, if you stopped to grieve, what would happen? You know that real sense that you had to hold it together because along came the next funeral, the next, you know, set of hospital visits that you knew would lead in a particular direction. So I really, I think that's, I think that's absolutely identifiable, that sense of suspension. And I, and I really think we're getting a sense of that with COVID too, that idea that actually we, we can't come together to grieve. And so we're holding off, you know, the number, you know, already I'm hearing about, okay, we're going to have a celebration of that person's life next year, you know, and in the meantime, there's a very quiet cremation or not even a attended cremation at all. And I think there's something resonant there. I mean, again, though, it's, it's interesting, the differences, you know, we didn't have anything here like Heart Island. And so that that really intense sense of the invisibility and anonymity of death that you described so movingly in that in, in in the piece that you shared, I think had a different cadence again here. I mean, it, it's interesting. I was thinking 
as I was reading that, but also the discussion we've just had about geography, that the, that the geography, when I moved to London, you know, there was kind of twin geographies. One of my kind of, of kind of queer pleasure, I suppose, of clubbing and whatever else I was doing around the city, but absolutely layered over that was, was a geography of death. You know, the particular hospital wards I was visiting, the new AIDS hospice that had opened in West London, and then round the edge of London are these crematoriums that were built. And so the visits out of the centre to go to various funerals in the first sort of five or six years that I was in London. And that kind of geography of, of, of death and illness, I suppose, superimposed um, onto, a, on, onto the other geographies. But what, what I was reflecting on, following on from what we were talking about earlier, was that it was very kind of, again, outside the centre. You know, it's very much you'd go out to the hospitals and out to the funerals and out to the hospice and then the centre of the city, it felt less evident than you're describing in the centre of New York, you know, in terms of being a bit, you know, death being visible in that way. The interesting thing that I've been thinking about COVID and I did refer to this in my article is that while we haven't been able to grieve, I think that that isn't a contested fact mm -hmm. um, that we may, we may not, and people will be angry because of that. But there is like, COVID has a very sort of heteronormative narrative, which is that we've lost grandma or um, protect your family. And when they're thinking about family, they are thinking about a very kind of normative family unit. And the, the deferral of grieving and the enormity of loss from the AIDS crisis, I think is still being grappled with because that kind of grief doesn't have the same value as the grief of COVID. I think, I think, and, I think yeah, I, sorry, I interrupted. No, please. I think, I think that's absolutely right. And also the, the way in which that grief gets laced with other, with, with, with this intense anger really, because I was just thinking about the kind of accounts of funerals and funerals, only one or two actually in fairness that I went to where you felt like you were attending a lie. You know, this was a, you know, this wasn't about the person one knew. This was about a version that was presentable. You know, and 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 I understood as well. You know that you know in, in the most you know in it, parents absolutely devastated and not knowing how to present and not not maybe quite knowing their sons' lives, um, and so so falling back into a kind of normative way of a normative ritual of of cremation and uh, and, and funeral ritual, which kind of yeah. neglected neglected a whole other side so there's a sense in which you're not quite the, the rituals weren't marking the whole person or the or the multiple dimensions of this of this person and I think that 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 leaves a strange hole you know in in terms of the the, the person you're thinking about and those dynamic those, those dynamics we've talked about and I think one of the really interesting things that happened in the UK and I, I think in the states as well was the way in which in the same way as I think gay men became very active in their own healthcare in hospital wards and, and in discussions with doctors and nurses. I think the same thing started to happen by the late eighties, early nineties in terms of funeral ritual. So, you know, you started to get, you know, these much less normal, <laughs> inverted commas, you know, um, with balloons released and Gloria Gaynor playing and whatever else it was that, that you know, the idea that, that men were beginning to take possession of the funerals that lay ahead of them. And it's interesting because there's a funeral director in Bristol who says that actually it, funerals more generally started to change. The ritual of death in, in the UK started to change more generally and, and they've become more personal and less formulaic, you know, much more about the person and what the person wanted uh, rather than a kind of scripted ritual or, or a conventional ritual. So I think something really interesting happened there about finding some small sense of I suppose agency in a context of kind of where people had been rendered or felt they'd been rendered passive. The, the interesting thing about all of this too is that I think what we glossed over and that you're pointing to is just how many families were completely comfortable in abandoning a mm -hmm. child and not taking care of them. And then even after like there were usually two funerals, right? If the family was good enough to come back and Sarah Shulman writes about it in Gentrification of the Mind, but they were good enough to come back and 
maybe retrieve the body or clear out the apartment. And usually they would just throw a lot of the stuff out in the street. And people would talk about the fact that like they could see homeless people a couple days later wearing their friend's clothing who had died. But, but this like this moment where for a decade, I don't know how to say it other than like the middle America would like find it okay to absolutely abandon their children who were ill dying, ill and dying mm. is, is shocking. And, and the other part that I think about the COVID crisis and, and the ensuing politics in the United States right now is that obviously gay marriage has been normalized, but, but those people and the way that they were willing to stigmatize their children who didn't conform to their morality or their norm are, are the people that are part of the polarization of the US still. Well, the, the, the absolute horror of it is that is the cultural ballast they had in doing that, in rejecting their sons. That was the right thing, the right thing to be doing. And, and it's so interesting in the, I don't know whether it's in the current context of COVID or what prompted it. We've just had, we've just had here released It's a Sin, which is this series about the AIDS crisis in the uh, uh, mid to late, late eighties in, in, centered in London. And I got an email a couple of days ago from the nephew of one of the men I'd written about who died, one of the squatting community that I was talking about, who died. And I got an email from his nephew wanting to find out more about his uncle. And I thought, I actually don't know how the family reacted to this guy's death, but it made me reflect on what those people who reacted in that way then and how they feel now, you know, given both the current crisis context and the kind of cultural and social shifts that have happened since the 80s and not happened, you know, the, the continuities and the discontinuities, you know, how do those parents reflect on that, on the way they behaved? How do those siblings think, you know? And is it then the, the ensuing generation, in this case, the nephew, that's saying, well, what, who was this person? Who was this man in my family um, that, you know, maybe wasn't talked about or whatever it was, you know, I don't know the, the family story there, but one can speculate. I, I do so think... Something interesting about the kind of resonance through the generations and how the past then haunts the present. You know, I can't imagine being, I mean, I can't imagine how those parents feel. I mean, what do they feel like having done that? These, these erasures are really part of the history of a queer belonging that... Un I, I almost feel like there should be a Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Commission for the kinds of like kind of brutality that happened and, and that were able to be erased. And then, you know, a nephew comes in and looks at that and, and how a family can keep contending with that. And I don't think that that will happen. You know, the thing that COVID doesn't have is no one has like a shame of, mm -hmm becoming COVID positive. And, and I was really fearful of that in the beginning of this. I was just so, like there were two things that happened. I run a theater program at Harvard and immediately when I started hearing reports in February, I started canceling productions and trips and everybody was furious at me, but it just felt instinctive to me. <laughs> like some of the instincts of actions because of a public health crisis was just really apparent to me, I think in a way that it wasn't mm -hmm. maybe to some of my colleagues. But then, you know, the other part is, is that I was really sure that people would be stigmatized for becoming COVID positive. And, and that I was completely wrong about. I mean, as soon as Tom Hanks announced that he had it, like that just kind of was a release. And that certainly didn't happen when Rock Hudson was revealed to have HIV. I mean, you could see, I mean, you could see, you could see almost the kind of beginnings of the rhetoric, but it didn't bite in the same, it, well, it didn't bite. It didn't take, take hold. I mean, just, just, just rolling back. I was just thinking about the kind of abuse of neglect during the AIDS crisis, but also the way in which in a way that was the culmination of the abuse of those those gay men in their childhoods, you know, in the sense that that actually it was the it was the culmination of that, the kind of moral righteousness that their kids should be should be straight and that they should grow up in this way. 
you know, almost the narrative was then set for the rejection that they then performed at the, at the point of their illness and death. But then also what you've both also written about is the kind of, you know, repurposing and reimagining of the rhetoric of family during this time. You know, it's being deployed on the, on the, on the right, if that's the right word, but to, you know, as a kind of family value shield, especially in the U.S. to stigmatize um, people with AIDS uh, further. But it's being those kinship ties are being reinvented and reimagined and rearticulated in in these queer communities of of care that are kind of are forced to spring into being and and replace those those ties those ties that might have been there socially and and and, and sexually and, and people coming together in a way gained additional late well well did gain really profound and urgent additional layers in the context of the crisis both in terms of fending off and protecting from the kind of horrors of the hatred that was being expressed around, but also in terms of the kind of day-to-day -day caregiving, which changed what home meant, you know, what family meant. I mean, homes became, I mean, all these people that were suddenly passing through people's flats, you know, that, before, you know, suddenly you've got, you know, people, you know, on kind of, you know, rotors to go in and care. You've got medical workers coming in, you've got medical equipment. Home just started to look and feel really different. And it was, it was often a kind of whole roster of caregivers rather than, you know, a, 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 an immediate two or three members of a family. So I think those those kind of, I suppose that's what I meant when I said that when I moved to London, I felt I moved into some intense sense of community and community connection, which was in a sense very difficult. But in another sense, it was, it was the, there was a real sense of entering a new sense of, of family or community or which I haven't felt since, you know, possibly because I'm older, or, but I mean, also because we've lost that intensity of need, I suppose. I also just wanted to jump in about a very different kind of quality of care that happens like right now with COVID, you know, the management of illness is a public knowledge and people perform it in the ways that the public health officials tell us to do whether it's, you know, you isolate in another room, you take care of this, you bring soup. But the, the interesting thing that happened during the AIDS crisis, and I think because as we talked about, like creativity was at the heart of this too. And also like the autonomy of the person with AIDS and to direct the kind of care that they want to get, like care looked different. You know, care could be like helping someone who is very ill complete an art project mm. because that's the thing that they want to leave as a legacy and or show up at a demonstration even they were really ill in some way. Okay, instead of whatever, like, yeah. or, or, or determining the mode of their death or determining that they want to be isolated. There was like less judgment and less prescription about mm -hmm. like the modes of care and how it had to be delivered. And I do feel like this is the moment where all of a sudden, you know, families, you know, when people talk about moving back into their parents' home and families are going through like that same parent-child relationship, none of these are created with the um, attention to the most vulnerable person mm -hmm. and how they wish to actually be cared for. Yeah. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I mean, that's absolutely what emerges, I think, I think out of the AIDS crisis here too, is that sense of the person being at the center, but also the kind of, but I think then you also get this kind of doubleness. I mean, you referred to it a moment ago, the, there's a kind of, in, at the moment with COVID, there's a singular public health message. Whereas my sense is, well, not my sense, during the AIDS crisis, there was there was there was messages and counter messages. There were the messages that were circulating amongst the gay community about how we care and what we should and shouldn't do, and being sex positive, for example, and safer sex and the modes of that. And then there was the kind of more official public health message, which in some ways was erasing the kind of gay specificity of some of this stuff or whatever. But there was kind of this idea of of two counter health messages going on. Here, the public health obviously public health officials, you know, HIV researchers depended on some of the research. I mean, there was a community research initiative here that thought about how uh, PCP prophylaxis should happen 
for opportunistic infections. And that actually came from research within the community. So the doctors and the scientists depended on the activists for interpretation of the data and a refiguring of how we were going to be in this together. And with COVID, it really is that we're back to depending upon the state to yeah. give us like the resources and the prescriptions for yeah. how we're gonna get through this. Absolutely, because I think there's a sense in which also the public health message here in the end got, gui got guided, was also guided by community organizations. Terence Higgins just which became huge but at the time was a was a smaller community organization started to guide the government in terms of the public health message about not being punitive about being you know encouraging people to test in certain you know all, all these various rhetorics that came out actually the health secretary at the time ended up listening in a way that I think didn't, didn't happen in the same way in the states but yes but in the end then we yeah. had like the the final sort of conclusion to all of that is Anthony Fauci giving credit to uh, its activists for the different ways in which he would approach a public health crisis now and involve community. Well, it's astonishing how many names from the late 80s and 90s who were wrapped up in epidemiology and public health and AIDS medicine have re-emerged, you know, as now senior figures in, 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 in the current crisis, you know, who cut their teeth on or, or, or gained their knowledge through that, through that earlier epidemic and I'm doing acknowledging that as well you know yeah um, because one of the things I, I, I was talking to Mary Beth about was was the way in which the AIDS crisis gets you know the, the constant reference point is the Spanish flu which is which is which I mean obviously right I mean it's but in many ways but also it's that's this erasure of the AIDS crisis <laughs> um, and, and and that really center every time that gets you know the biggest this is the biggest a pandemic for a, for a century. And I kind of find myself feeling a kind of fury rise up. I know. It's like, are you serious? Like, are you actually serious? Like that, that we've somehow again, rendered this, the, the scale of this loss invisible. Yeah. And across, I, across the world, you know. I think all of us who went through the AIDS crisis are feeling that. Just in terms of kind of beginning to circle round towards an end, I wonder if, each of you'd like to reflect just a little bit on, you know, there are a lot of losses, a lot of deaths now that the mourning for which are going to be delayed. Um, there's obviously in the US and in the UK structural inequities in healthcare provision that the current pandemic has revealed yet again. When you look back on the 80s and 90s, what, what do you think are the main lessons in terms of um, any of that, really, whether it's addressing health inequities or assimilating unimaginable loss. I'm going to jump right in, Mary Beth, if you don't mind, because obviously I, I've done, I was in ACT UP, I've done a lot of research on ACT UP. In the founding document of ACT UP, which is called the working document, one of the first declarations is that in the US, we need universal health care. There were moments where we actually thought we were close to it. I'm looking at it now and thinking that that's absolutely crazy. But in the US, this, the, the amount of deaths that could have been prevented if people had both access to health care and then some kind of uh, public health system that hadn't been decimated since Reagan, then, then we would not be in the situation we're in right now. And it's shocking to me that that's where we were at and what everybody points to as our success is the triple combination cocktail when, when the, the movement had the potential to be so much more. So, I look at the COVID crisis as not just a continuation of the decimation of all of those resources, but as kind of the concluding event of it. And, and if, we, if we can't as a country come together to be able to grapple with that, then you know, we basically have health apartheid in, in our country. And the only thing that was extraordinary about the AIDS crisis then was the fact that 
there were some people who were very enfranchised who were able to move this agenda forward and get heard as opposed to what's happening now, which is for the most part, there's that moment where we can mourn, but if we don't mourn politically, which mm. is what we were taught through the AIDS crisis, then we have lost this opportunity to look at this moment of chaos and make something out of it. You said way more articulately what I was, what I was beginning to think, what I think is that, that, that it's a case of lessons not learned. I mean, this time around, I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, it's, it's, as you point out, doubly acute in the context of the states, but I mean, the fact here that our health service has been run down and we haven't learned that we need a robust and, and a robust system with capacity. You know, that's why our, our death rates in the UK have been way higher than they should have been. You know, that actually it's faced, it's faced a decade of, 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 of cuts. You know, which have left it unable to cope with with the kind of inevitable crisis that that was that was that was going to come along, and also I think the way I find it so depressing that we're then in this in these conversations about who, how we spread the vaccine globally, and who should have first dibs in this vaccine, and who can afford it, and who can't afford it, and and I think you know that is that is still the absolute crisis about HIV medication and care, and the the way in which most of the world doesn't have access to these drugs or easy access to these to these drugs which could really you know which could really really put a full stop i mean there's there's, there's a those are political choices which are not being made and so you're absolutely right that this needs to be a cause for action and activism to really insist on on a healthcare system and the equitable distribution of medication and so on that that actually might prevent this happening again but i mean i don't feel optimistic about yeah. those I don't either. Well, thank you. Thank you both. This is, yeah, a good cheery note to end on. <laughs> Neither of us feel optimistic. Man. I do love the fact that these, this prompts uh, coming together and conversations both across generations and global conversations about this as well. And, and people are actually asking because there was a long time where it was very quiet around the lessons learned from the AIDS crisis or what is continuing mm. and certainly how it works, like the inequity that is happening around the globe. Mm. So all of a sudden we're kind of popular again, Matt, where people are <laughs> like looking at us as if we have some wisdom, but, but it does like, it does bring together people in different kinds of conversations that may lead to something. Many thanks to Matt Cook and Deborah Levine for taking part in this conversation. You can find links to their articles on AIDS and AIDS activism on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.